Uh, good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Depends on where you guys are. My name is Jerry Mill, and I'm an alcoholic. And you know, Chris, I've been praying the same thing all freaking morning. I'm like, geez, Jerry, don't fuck this up. Excuse my French. You know what I mean? And then I get a text from Ronald. Don't fuck it up. You know what I'm saying? It's like, why are you putting that kind of pressure on me, man? You know what I mean? I got enough pressure on me as it is right now. And I apologize for dropping the F-bombs. That's just a little inside joke. Uh, my name, like I said, my name is Jerry Mill, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, sobriety date of December the 2nd of 1999. And that's the day that God set me free. And he made me on the doorstep of a sober living where I landed on more dead than alive. Took me a while to get there. My home group is the Never Too Early Big Book Workshop, y'all. That's right. That's right. And I've been going there since I was five years sober. That means I got 19 years of going to Never Too Early Big Book Workshop. And what I love about Never Too Early Big Book Workshop is it's all-encompassing, right? It don't matter what your A is. You can just come on in there. You know what I mean? And it's just so good to hear, you know, how everybody would take, we would take a sentence or a paragraph and everybody would expound on it from all them different A's and all them different genders and, and, and the, the, you know, to see their spin on the same paragraph. It's just been enlightening to me, right? We call it putting flesh on the words, you know, and I love, and I've, you know, I've had to write about my home group too, cause you know, they don't piss me off from time to time. You know what I mean? They really have, you know what I mean? But I love Never Too Early Big Book Workshop. And you know, especially thanks always goes out to Mrs. White, man, because you know, that's where it started at, man. And you know, she allowed, you know what I'm saying? Her sons to have that thing in her house. Now I wasn't at the house, you know, but my sponsor comes out of that house. His name's Art Burris. You know, he told me I can use his whole name. You know what I mean? And I thank God for Art because Art is sponsored by Greg. And I thank God for Greg because Greg is sponsored by Jerome Scott, you know, and um, and I'm really humbled. I really am. I'm really, I, Ralph, you have no idea how appreciative I am that you guys have actually asked me to be on this panel been a bunch of heavy hitters today, man. It really has, you know what I mean? I've been like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. You know what I mean? It's just hard to follow. I'm sorry. I don't apologize. I am trying not to cuss no more because I, you know, I know we got some sensitive people here. You know what I mean? But Amy came in this morning talking about step one. You know what I mean? She talked about the three legacies and that's something my sponsor believed in as well. You know what I mean? And I thank her, man, for um for what she brought, you know, um, what she brought to the table this morning. She talked about you know, when she was in the hospital, was there anybody that they can call? And then she had nobody for them to call. You know, I related to that. I recognized that, you know, and Jimmy came in, golly, you know, he's like, now I would call him a big book thumper, right? Because he was knocking off pages and phrases and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I ain't even gonna try to keep up with that guy. But what he brought to me was, you know, he said he didn't believe there was any God in these squares. And I kind of felt the same way when I first started doing Zoom. I was skeptical about it, but I got to be honest with you. Uh, that pandemic, this is one of the greatest things that came out of that pandemic is freaking Zoom. Wish I'd have brought some stock in it, but hey, you know, I'm a slow learner, you know, but um, I've always found God in these squares. And there's a lot of people that got sober here, you know, on Zoom, you know, and it's just amazing. Um, it is. And he also said, not being afraid to look in the darkness, you know what I mean? Cause that, cause that's where I live. You know, when I got to California, when I got to alcohol synonymous, I was in the dark, you know what I mean? I was just drinking and using just to forget what drinking and using was. I didn't want to look at the dark and that's why I was drinking and using. I'm trying to forget the dark because it's dark in there and it's lonely in there, you know, and Holly D came in and touched it off with the torture of that loneliness, you know what I mean? And oh my God, I so related to that. Thank you, Holly. I really do because, um, you know, it's nothing worse than being alone with yourself, man, and wondering how in the hell did I get here? You know, what happened to me? You know, this was not my dream back in the sixth, seventh, or the eighth grade, you know. And then, you know, I love Jennifer. Jennifer, I appreciate your hospitality. I did get a chance to go down the plane over one time, and she sent me to one of them Thursday night meetings, and they was very welcoming. You know what I mean? I just, and I loved your honesty, too, you know, and, and I think, the whole thing, right, when I look at it, right, through all these steps is just to be fitted for maximum service to God and my fellows from the third step prayer all the way up to the seventh step prayer. You know, and I think one of the biggest tricks I think Bill did to us, though, was when we do the third step prayer, right? We go through this whole third step prayer. We hold hands, we get on our knees. God, I offer myself to thee, to build with me and to do with me as thy will. Relieve me of the bondage yourself that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And then you know what the next sentence says, right? 
We thought well before taking this step. See, that's some BS, Bill. You know what I'm saying? We didn't already said the prayer, so we're already in it, you know. And um, and I love steps eight and nine. I really do, because for me, steps eight and nine actually allowed me to feel like I belong. Now, I'd been around here for a while. I didn't get Alcoholics Anonymous when I first got here. But, you know, when I got to steps eight and nine, I actually felt like I was a part of, you know, and um, and that's what eight and nine did for me, you know, but it took a while for me to get there. Y'all, it really did. I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous January of 1996. And um, and I came up in here with them old beliefs. You know, I was my back pockets was touching, you know, and I went to my very first meeting because I had just called this dude. Right. Because I had just got the car shot up with my five year old in the front seat and the Christmas toys in the trunk. You know what I mean? And I needed some help and I wasn't raised to ask for help because what happens in this house stays in this house. And I found Alcoholics Anonymous number in the phone book and I called this number and I told this dude a little bit about what was going on. And I remember I remember telling me, he's like, man, I, I got the right place for you. He sent me to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was at Yukon High School in Torrance, California. And I walked off in that room and there was a bunch of people that looked like y'all and they were sitting in there. They was talking, they were smiling, they was hugging, they were stringing whole sentences together. Their clothes was clean, they smelled good. And I said to myself, God dang, he sent me to the wrong spot, right? He sent me to the happy place, you know, cause wasn't nothing happy in my life, you know, at this particular moment, you know what I'm saying? And I had no idea that I was in an emergency room for a guy like me, you know what I mean? And it would take, four more years of that shaking and faking, you know what I mean? To actually come in, like we say, come all the way in and sit all the way down. Because see, the guy that I came in with, who I actually didn't know at the time that I, well, I knew I wasn't living up to him, you know what I mean? And I thought he had kicked me to the curb because that was evident by the life that I was living. You know what I mean? That couldn't even be any further from the truth, but I wouldn't know that until I came all the way in and sat all the way down, you know? If you'd have told me back in the 70s, going to this Podman Funkadelic concert, you know what I mean, that I was going to end up doing what I was doing, I would have told you it was crazy. You know what I mean? I grew up back east in Hartford, Connecticut. You know what I mean? Life was a lot simpler in the 70s, you know, um, and I'm ACA as well, you know, but that that not would make me an alcoholic. You know, simply put, what makes me an alcoholic is like the doctor opinion describes. Something happens to a cat like me when I put one in. You know what I mean? I set off this thing called a phenomenon of craving, period. You know what I mean? No matter how great necessity of the wish. I lie to myself about wanting to stop. I'm only going to spend 40. Or I'm only going to spend, or I'm going to put my money in my right sock. I didn't work last week, so I'm going to put it in my left sock this week. You know what I'm saying? Or I'm going to leave 100 at work. You know, that that crazy stuff. So I, more about alcoholism talks about me all the time, right? Because I'm always trying to figure out how to drink like a normal person. But like back in the 70s, if you would have told me, you would say, you know, this is the 70s, they don't built the Hoffrick Civic Center, right? Um, they're trying to drum up attendance. So they're passing out free tickets, right? I'm 15 years old, right? And they're passing out free tickets. Me and my friends get a hold of them, right? Now, back then, you know, we used to get them four-finger nickel bags, and we were smoking at Acapulco Gold. You know what I'm saying? And you know we wore a lot of polyester in the 70s, a lot of polyester, bell bottoms, you know what I'm saying, pad leather shoes. And you know what happens, though, in that kind of weed? We used to smoke stems and seeds. So you had to clean your weed or you're going to kill a whole outfit because all it took was like one pop, pop, and everybody stopped running because you never know where it's going to land, right? And you burn that, that look, that polyester burns quick, right? It burns very fast. Ain't nobody playing with that. So we would clean our weed, you know, and my job was to go around my friend's house, cipher as much liquor from our, their parents as I could, you know what I mean? And uh, we used to carry them boater bags, them sheepskin boater bags. I had old granddad in there, had some white label, you know what I'm saying? I had some cutty shark, you know what I'm saying? I, you name it. So, I mean, some Crown Royal. I had all that mixed up in that one bag. That crap was horrible, but it did the trick, right? Got us there, man. And we down at the Civic Center, y'all, and all the lights go off and just a little spaceship comes down. And you can feel attention starting to build. And we puffing and we drinking. And all of a sudden it hits the stage. And before you know it, it the lights go off again. A giant explosion happened. And you see the big mothership coming down, right? And everybody getting ready to just lose their minds, right? And all of a sudden the door opens. This dude came out in a white fur coat and a white fur hat talking. Turn the roof off the movie truck. And the place just exploded, right? And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is so much fun. I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. Nobody got killed, shot at, stabbed, hurt. You know what I'm saying? Everybody made it home. We talked about the concert all the way home. 
But you know, my the alcoholism I suffer from is a subtle foe. You know, the book talks about it being like a boomerang and one day turning in flight and all but cut me to shreds. You know, I had no idea then if you'd have told me that I'll be putting my kids' life on the line to get one more. You know, I told you it was crazy. You know, I didn't know then that I would go to any lengths to get one more. I'd have told you it was crazy, you know, and I had no idea what alcoholism was. I really didn't. You know, all I knew was my mom would disappear for a few days and she would come back. You know what I mean? That's it. You know, and sometimes she'll take dad's car. Mom and dad got married and divorced twice off of mom alcoholism. You know what I mean? And and all I know is one day she, in 1977, she was dating this guy. She went to a place called Serenity Hill, right? And when she came back, you know, she sat me and my sister down individually and she apologized to us for the way she had been treating us and the way her life had turned out, you know, and, um, that was all I heard. See, in retrospect, I know that was her amends to my sister and to myself. My mother never had another drink from 1977 until she passed away December 31st of 2008. You know, there was no talk of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was none of that. I never seen a big book in our house, you know, but my alcoholism would, my alcoholism would, you know, would grow, you know, and by the time I was, um, you know, I went in the military, my alcoholism died down a little bit, you know what I mean? Uh, I was able to go in the military and they was able to straighten me out. And, you know, and I was I was good for a little while, but then my, that eighth year of my, of my career, my uh, military career, that alcoholism showed up again. And it took me about eight months, y'all, to just blow that whole career up. You know, um, Uncle Sam did what Uncle Sam can do, but I had, and I still at this point, I don't know what's really wrong with me. You know, I'm just thinking I'm not controlling my alcohol that good. That's what I'm thinking. And I end up, excuse me, and I end up out in California, y'all, in 1990. And my alcoholism would take a different turn. I started putting the alcohol on the rocks, as my boy Chip would say. You know what I mean? And um, and life started to get strange. You know, I got I got three kids, and now I'm a single parent. And with my putting these alcohol on the rocks, and all we, we're getting evicted about every six months. You know what I'm saying? I'm not calling my mother as regularly as I as I as I normally would. You know what I mean? I'm starting to hide. My world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm finding it hard to manage. I'm finding it hard to keep jobs. I'm finding it hard to maintain relationships. You know, I would start dating a girl and bring her over for dinner until I'd be right back. And next thing she knows, she's at my house for two days with the kids. You know what I mean? I started doing stuff like that. You know, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. You know, I knew what my job was as a father. Provide, protect, and the love, and to keep the boogeyman out the house, right? But I couldn't protect my kids from me, y'all, and I didn't know what was wrong with me, and I didn't know how to ask for help. You know, I wanted to be my kids' hero. I did. I wanted them to be the ones I look up to. See, my oldest son was by another woman, so what I would do is I would get them together every summer, you know, and I got to be honest with you. The last time my son seen California, he was 12 years old, and I had took him down to the rhodium. I went to jail that weekend, came home. Just enough time to put him on the airplane. He was 12 years old. I took him over to the rhodium and brought him a $10 pair of sneakers and put him on the plane. It would be 16 years before I laid eyes on him again, because that's where my alcoholism take me. You know, when I landed on the doorstep of that sober limit, December 2nd, 1999, it would be 11 years before I'd actually lay eyes on my own mother. You know, and I think I don't do anybody no harm because I'm not in their face, not doing what it is, you know what I'm saying, that I do, right? Because they can't see me, you know what I'm saying? couldn't be further from the truth, you know. Um, but by December 33rd of 1995, y'all, you know, I'm getting evicted every six months. I got these kids in tow, you know. I don't know what to do to stop, you know, getting evicted every six months. And we living in a place on Eucalyptus in Bellflower, California. And I give you kind of a description of the house. You know, we had, when the sheriffs come, they give you 10 minutes maybe 15 depends on how nice they are before you get up which you can get and get out the house and there um there was a knock on the door and there was the aunties and what they had did y'all they had brought my kids some christmas toys this year right because they got tired of seeing me cry and my kids sad on christmas birthdays holidays going back to school no cool no new school clothes etc now, what the aunties asked me, because they had to fly back east, what they asked me was kind of insulting, and it was point blank, but it was the truth. They asked me, what would it take for me not to sell these toys? And I told them, hmm, how about some season seven and a pack of Newports? And they said, is that all you need, Jerry? I said, yep. And they came back with a half a gallon of season seven, 
a big old liter of 7-Up and three packs of Newports. And they gave me them toys. The tree didn't have all the arms in it, but it was enough to hold some lights and it was a brown towel around the bottom. The living room TV was this big, giant, old wooden console, right? It didn't work. The 12-inch black and white on top of it did with the coat hanger in it so I can get channels. Um, wasn't no cable in the house. And the couch looked like it belonged to a frat house, y'all. It had dips in it, cigarette burns, and the whole nine. You know, and I had top ramen in there, a bag of potatoes, and, and a pack of hot dogs, right? That was going to be Christmas dinner. And that's just how we was living, you know? And my kids was dying the same alcoholic death that I was, you know? And I didn't know what was on me. I really didn't, y'all. And um, But by 2 o'clock in the morning, y'all, that Seagram 7 wasn't doing what that Seagram 7 needed to do, and I needed to add some rocks to that Seagram 7. So I thought to load those toys up in the trunk of that car against everything I just told the aunties I wouldn't do. And my five-year-old wakes up. Because, see, by this point in my drinking career, he needs to lay across me in order for him to stay asleep all night. See, the book talks about that incomprehensible demoralization that I couldn't define when I got here. I couldn't tell you what the Webster definition was, but I knew that it fit when I got here. You know, and um, he wakes up, he comes downstairs, the toys are gone, and he grabs my leg and asks me, where's daddy going? Where are you going? I said, I'll be right back. He said, daddy, please don't go. And I'm trying to shake off a five-year-old. And I wouldn't, and he wouldn't let go this night. And so I loaded him up in the front seat of that car. You know, because he had started to cry, and he knew when my daddy said he was going, it's going to take daddy a couple of three days to get back back, just like what my mom used to do. And we drive down the Greenleaf and Long Beach Boulevard with them, with them toys in the trunk. And that's why I usually turn those into coupons and, um, and I sell them off. And, but when the guys came up to the car, y'all, in that alley, they wasn't serving what I was looking for. They both had pistols and they pulled them out and they opened fire on the car. I screamed, I ducked, I pushed my son to the floor and I stepped on the gas. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm checking myself for holes because I must be hit, because it was point-blank range. But I don't feel myself leaking. And I said, when I get to the, the street, I'm going to find some police, because now I'm about to do some snitching. When I get to the street, I can't find any police. So I drive all the way back to that apartment complex, calling to this child a few times, and he's not responding. So I figure if I'm not hit, he must be. And I start to fall apart. And I start to beg this guy who I ain't talked to in a long time, Please just don't let that boy be dead because I don't know how I'm explaining to his grandmother that I got him killed trying to sell his Christmas toys. And when I get back to that apartment complex, y'all, I didn't want to look, but I had to. I pulled up in there and I put that thing in park and I got out the car and everything just kind of went in slow motion. And I walked around that car and I opened his door. He was still in the ball and I picked him up. And his eyes was wide open. And it wasn't no holes in him. And I held him real close to my chest and I cried and I thanked God and I blew snot. And I would love to tell you that that was enough for me to get sober. But on page 24 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that at a certain point in every drinking career that I have passed through the state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of no avail. I can't bring in the consciousness with sufficient force, the memory, of, of pain and suffering of a week or a month ago and went out with defense against that first one. But I don't know the big book yet, right? All I know is I just got the car shot up with a five-year-old in the front seat, Christmas toys in the trunk, and that's when I made that call. And I went, I made that call, I went to that meeting, and like this guy that I knew, he had just kicked me to the curb, I was convinced then, right? I was shaking as I was trying to drink that Seagram 7 because I was trying to kill a bottle after that. But when I got to that meeting, y'all, I walked off in there, and like I said, I told you what you people look like, man, and um, and my back pockets were touching, and I still had an opinion on who I thought God was. And then y'all sealed the deal when y'all held hands at the end of the meeting, and y'all chanted. Y'all said this thing called the serenity prayer. And, you know, it would take me about four more years before I would actually surrender because, see, I still had this idea of who God was. Now, I'm convinced today without beyond a shadow of a doubt that my bottom was designed for me to be able to lay aside. I think Jimmy talked about it earlier, to lay aside what I think I know about who God really is. I need to get to that place where it don't no matter what I think. You know what I mean? That I just wanted something different than what I had. And it took every ounce of that incomprehensible demoralization that I was suffering, these kids would go through in order for me to say, no miles, I can't go no more. 
Thank you, God, please help me. You know what I'm saying? And when I land on the doorstep of that sober living, a guy let me up in there without a penny in his pocket. His name is Carl M. He did an intake interview on me, asked me what my choice, drug choice was. I told him, he said, he looked at me, he said, well, you don't got no money to move in, do you? I said, thank you. Somebody understands, you know what I mean? And um, he said, but I'm gonna let you move in anyway. You know, and um, and, and see, now I had been around Alcoholics Anonymous now for four years. Sober living's programs, I'd have been in the Salvation Army. I was at Grandview over you know over in uh um pasadena you from you know for i've just been in all kind of programs you know what i mean and my sponsor told me when i got prepared to listen when i came to sit down this uh, how we always say come all the way in and sit all the way down you know what i mean being in alcoholics anonymous is different than being around alcoholics anonymous and i need to change my location you know herbert spencer contributed to the big book of alcoholics anonymous right the spiritual experience right he also had he also was in a book of quotes and one of the ones that just sit home with me hit home with me was the greatest crime one can commit against oneself is to steal from yourself and not know that something is missing. And I've been stealing from myself for the last four years and I didn't know what was missing. Lack of power was my dilemma. See, everything that you guys have been saying to me for the last four years came to life when I started, when I got surrendered. You know what I mean? And it took what it took for a guy like me to surrender. And he says, I'm gonna let you into this sober living under, he says, under one condition. I said, what's that? He said that you sit in that chair until I find you somewhere to sleep. He found me a bed at 304 Roland Avenue. A couple hours later, he wrote down the address and told me to walk over there. Now, I don't know if you guys ever remember this show called In Living Color, but Jim Carrey had a character on there called Fire Marshal Bill, right? Now, I knock on the door of this big, beautiful green house, man. I swear to God, it was a miniature version of Fire Marshal Bill standing at the door, man. He was talking real fast. His lips was moving at one speed. His teeth was moving at another. And I'm thinking like, oh, shit, I done broke something. You know what I'm saying? But, and it was broad daylight, but what had happened was his dentures was loose. I would find that out later. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, I'm just glad because I mean, my brain was still intact, right? And um, he looked at me, he said, I've been expecting you, Carl had called ahead. He says, um, he says, he says, are you hungry, brother? I said, what? He says, are you hungry? I said, yup. And all of a sudden something hit me. I started to weep in the broad daylight in front of another man. Today, I know that was my surrender, for real surrender, because I couldn't go on another step living the way that I was living. And I went down on one knee because I was done. You know, I was cracked. The tough guy routine was gone. You know, none of that more, no more of that. I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six crap. You know what I'm saying? And I died with my secrets. None of that crap mattered. You know what I'm saying? I was just tired. And then another dude came out the house to help me up. His name was Dirty Red. And he had some ink on his neck to say we couldn't be friends. But the first word out of his mouth was, you say, brother, we got you. And they brought me into that sober living and they brought me into this room they called the runway. Well, it depends on the condition you are when you get there, they let you sleep for a day or two. And they told me to get some rest, we're going to get you a burrito. And when they left me in that room, I closed the door because he, me and this guy in my hadn't talked in a while. I said, he'd have a conversation with him. I said, God, if you give your boy another shot at this thing called life, I'd be forever your servant, forever in your debt. You know, I had no idea that he was already there. I had no idea that he met me right where I was at. I had no idea that he had his hands on my life when he, when he, you know, around that car that just got shot up. I had no idea when I tried to trade my daughter for one more, that he, the guy had more morals than I did at the time. God had been with me all along, but I wouldn't find that out till later. So I get in this house and I know the only thing I hadn't done was the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had been all the 12 step dances and I had some, you know what I'm saying, went to all the 12 step barbecues and I had a bunch of 12 step commitments, but the only thing I hadn't done was the 12 step I even tried, got a 12-step girlfriend. I tried to get it sexually transmitted. That shit didn't work. You know what I'm saying? So I, the only thing I hadn't done was the 12 steps, man. And I made God a promise that, you know, if he gave me that other shot, that I would work those 12 steps. And me and that guy, they Earl M, we got into the work, man. And I started doing that process. You know what I mean? And, you know, he made me write out my problems and this. And he told me to write down the times I got loaded when I didn't want to. You know what I mean? Just so I can see my true powerlessness of it. And he told me, don't even get stuck on step two because I got a problem with God anyway, right? And he also told me that I have religion and spirituality confused. He was like, Jerry, don't trip on that. He said, Jerry, religion is for people who fear hell. Spirituality is for people that already been. 
So you just keep on moving. And we took the third step prayer in this house under candlelight on my knees. You know what I'm saying? And I can't tell you what I felt then, but I know all I knew was I was ready to do that work. You know, like I said, it had been 11 years before I seen my own mom. And by the time I got to this step, eight and nine, I had a list of people, you know what I'm saying, who I needed to make amends to. And my baby sister, I wasn't even putting her on the list, but thank God for good sponsorship. Cause he said, well, I don't see your baby sister on the list. I said, well, she tried to have me killed. She will not be on the amends list. You know what I'm saying? He said, Jerry, remember, we said we'd go through any lift for victory over alcohol. He said, I'll tell you what, he tricked me. He says, we're going to make a special column for you, Jerry. It's called the Never Never Column. The Never Never Column is in the book. I just missed it. You know what I mean? So I put her name on the Never Never Column, you know, and I got my three by five cards together, you know, and I went back to my sober living and I couldn't wait to tell the guys. You know what I'm saying? That I'm about ready to do my amends, you know. You did that seven-step prayer, the, the seven-step prayer that ended seven step. Cause you know what it says, it told me it says that now more, but I completed step seven without more action, faith without works is dead. You know what I'm saying? I gotta get to some action, man. And that mean that means I gotta be willing to go out here and face those things that I've been running from all this time. I gotta be willing to stand up and say, This is what I did, and I'm sorry. And I got to make amends because what the workshop taught me was apology is different than amends. Jerry, you got to fix this thing, you know? And, um, and so I said, you know, but the first one, I said, I don't, I got a list, man, but I ain't seen my mom in so long. I really wanted to do her first, you know, and I didn't have enough money, man, for a round trip plane ticket back to Connecticut. And I remember coming back home about three days later, y'all. And there was a round trip plane ticket on my bed and that's open the boys had brought me a plane ticket so I can go make my first amends to my mom. I was terrified. I was terrified because I knew this woman's heart was broken. I was terrified because I just didn't want to face her and I had failed as a son. I was terrified all that, you know. But he said, look, remember, we you said we willing to go to any length for victory over alcohol. I got on that plane that Friday, man, and I got to where my mother's address was. Now, by this time, she had lost the house. She's living in what you call an independent living, which is just short of an assisted living, right? And, um, and I find out where her room is. I go to her room. I knock on the door. She answers the door. Old girl is kind of gray right now. You know what I'm saying? But when she seen me, she screamed. And she screamed and she's trying to talk and she grabbed my face and she's just starting to wail because she ain't seen her son in 11 years and there I stood because of rooms like this and people like you in the process outlined in that book you know and uh, and when she was able to get some words out what she said was her only prayer for the last 11 years is that she get to see her baby boy one more time before she dies and there I stood, like I said, because room like this, people like you in that process. And she wrapped her arms around my waist. And she held me even tighter. And my mother ain't never held me that tight, you know. And uh, she finally let me in the house. And I was glad because, boy, I had to go to the bathroom, you know. And um, she finally let me up in that house. And, um, and I got to the bathroom. And I told her, I said, Mom, I'm on a life and death mission. You know what I mean? In order for me to stay sober, I got to make you whole as I possibly can, you know, and uh, I said, but I need you to sit down, mom. She was like, boy, I can hear you keep talking. You know what I mean? And uh, she wouldn't sit down because what she was doing was she was making her baby boy his favorite meal. She was making him some homemade salmon croquettes. She had a pot of grits on. She had put a pot of grits on and she's scrambling up some eggs. And, um, and she kept moving and I just kept going through what I went there to do, you know? And then I asked her the question. I said, mom, was there anything that I forgot? you know, that you like to tell me, you know, and she, she stopped moving then, took a drag off that more cigarette. She told me about the nights when she just couldn't sleep, when she knew her baby was in trouble. She told me about them days when the phone rang and she just got real scared to answer it. She told me about all that kind of stuff that I think I wasn't doing to her because I was out of sight and out of mind and I couldn't be any further from the truth. You know, then I asked, well, outside of what I'm going to do, what else can I do to make you whole as I possibly can? Now, mind you, I told you I just put my baby sister on the never-never list, right? God damn it. He tricked me. My mother didn't think too long about it. She said, baby, 
You know when your mama died, all you're going to have left is your baby sister. I said, what? She says, all you're going to have left is your baby sister. If you make it right with her, your mama will be whole. I said, chip, 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 okay. Now, mind you, all this time, I had built my sister up to be this villain. Mind you, all this time, my sister was an easy scapegoat for the condition of my life. That's why I couldn't go back home, you know, all this time. You know, and I said, okay, because I didn't think she was going to do what she did. She said, good, we're going to call her right now. I'm like, right now, ma, it's like one in the morning. You know what I mean? And she called my baby sister. And my baby sister hightailed over there, man. And I'm sitting on the couch. I'm shaking. My legs move like, oh, shit, I don't ready for this one. I didn't go here for her. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking all the excuses. I don't want to talk to her, man. And I got to be honest with you, man. When, when the door, when she knocked on the door, my mother made me answer the door. When I walked to that door, but from the distance from the couch to that door, all that hate and animosity I have for my baby sister, I don't know where it went. But it was gone. When I opened the door, on the other side of that door was my baby sister. Somebody who I left out there, man, I did. I left her out there. She wasn't protected. And that's why she turned out the way she turned. You know, and for some reason, all this other stuff did just start coming in. And what I found out was, when she found out that it wasn't me, what they had thought I had did, she had tried to set herself on fire and kill herself. What I didn't realize either, they had locked up for 18 months for that. And also what I didn't realize is she was eight months sober. <laughs> Working her own program. She was eight months sober. And she had been trying to reach her big brother. Let me tell you something. If you think I didn't feel like a member of Alcoholics Anonymous after that one, you would be wrong. I was well on my way. I was well on my way to a, to a life beyond my wildest dreams. I was rocking into the fourth dimension because God took one little willingness and he just painted this whole picture. I'm not saying your family will get back together. That's just my story. You know what I mean? And um. And I'm so grateful, man, to this process because um, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, man. 8,844 days ago was the last time I needed to take one. And I don't have to take one ever again. I'm a part of this thing. You know what I'm saying? It never truly is my big is my family, man, because let me tell you something. They have taught me how to peel back the layers of onions that, that's been blocking me from the sunlight of spirit, even when I'm sober. Because see, that amends process just don't stop. That was just my first amends. See, one of the things I love about the workshop is we go through the process on cycles, right? We get to, and thank God he didn't give it all to me at first, right? He didn't give me everything I did at first. My, my first inventory was thorough and honest as I could possibly be, but there would be more later. I didn't realize at five years sober, right? Part of my marriage to my mom was I would send her a stipend every month. Sponsor gave me a strict instructions, Jerry. Whenever you sin, I don't care the amount. You can't go lower, but you can go higher. And make sure it gets there the same day every month. Every month. So I'm five years sober. I'm doing my thug thizzle. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't mail it off on Sunday. So by Wednesday, mom's calling me. Hey, baby. She wasn't mean. She was like, hey, baby. Uh, did you send off that package? She asking for my money. I got hot. I didn't say it to her, but I got, I was uneasy. So I go to my sponsor. He's like, well, Jerry, I guess we need to do some more work. When I would come to find out that 12-year-old standing on the side of that bed in my mother's bedroom, hungry, needing some money to eat, he was still injured. And there would be more work for me to do to champion that 12-year-old. To, and not so much for my mother, but to release me. You know what I mean? Because for some reason, I thought I had something to do with it. You know, and me and I were able to go to a whole new level, right? And um, by this time, you know, I'm nine years sober. My oldest son, I am still haven't seen him. Don't even know where he is, right? I get a call from my daughter. Daddy, 
I'm like, what, Mies? We found Jamie. I said, what? She said, we found Jamie. I said, Mies, you got four kids. Ain't you busy enough? You know what I'm saying? Because she's doing too much right now because I got terrified because it's, it's been that long, right, since I seen him. You know what I mean? It's been 16 years since I actually laid eyes on my oldest son. You know, and what she did was she Googled him. And there he was in Brooklyn selling paintings on the side of the street. You know what I mean? And um, she's got his number and she called him. And um, she tried to three-way us. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And now he's been on the amends list. I just haven't been able to find him. And um, she's trying to three-way us, right? And for some reason, they dropped me. But I can hear them. They couldn't hear me. And she's telling him who her dad is now. She's my biggest cheerleader, right? Daddy been sober for nine years. He speaks and stuff. He helps people. You know, they do, they go to these meetings. He gets a cake every year. You know, he's a real good guy now. You should really give him another chance. What Jamie said was, you know me, that sounds good. You know what I'm saying? I'm glad, I'm really glad you found me. He said, that's who he is to you. That's not who he is to me. He said, but you can give him my number and he can give me a call if you want to. You know, I was terrified. I had to talk to my sponsor. I had to do some praying. And four days later, I gave him a call. And I said, hey, um, you know, I'd like to know if you got any time this year where I could come and sit down and have a conversation with you. I've got some things I need to talk to you about. And he gave me Thanksgiving. Now, March of that year, my mother brother died. This is 2008, it was a big year for me. My mother brother died. I fly into Connecticut, pick her and my sister and my niece up. We drive down to South Carolina, cuss my sister out on the way. More work needed to be done there because she was talking to my mother crazy, right? So now I need to go more pen to paper, right? But what I find out is my mom and her, they come out, they come out of the hotel room and they got, uh, she's got a bandaid on her chest. And I'm like, mom, what up? what's that mandate for? And she told me that they, uh, they had did a biopsy as if I didn't know what a biopsy was. So she had got diagnosed with cancer in March of that year. I was set to meet Jamie in November. And, you know, part of my minutes to my mom was I get to call her every day so she wouldn't worry about where I was at. So I got to listen to this woman deteriorate over that year. And I was as well as I can be prepared. Because um, once the cancer started to spread, you know, a conversation, she couldn't make whole sentences anymore, you know, and um, I ended up flying back that Thanksgiving um, and found out she had been on the floor for three days and she ended up in the hospital. And I got to tell you, the helplessness that I feel sometimes, I felt then, um, you know, I'm all the way out in Cali and she was all the way back in Connecticut and and part of me and my sister re-beef was I didn't think she was taking care of mom like she was supposed to. And obviously, I needed to do some more writing there. So the amends process was big. Anyway, she's going out. I get a chance to meet with my son. And I drive up to Brooklyn, y'all. And I'm terrified again, again. But I'm prayed up and I'm ready to go, right? Because <laughs> this amends is a long time coming, you know? And um. I get over there, I run, you know, I see him coming out the building. I run into a trash can. I'm so excited and nervous and scared and all that kind of stuff. Cause he's about six two now. You know what I'm saying? He's handsome, you know, and it's like I see him coming. He's actually running down the street after the car, right? I'm just trying to find somewhere to park. You know, and when I get out the car, man, he ran, he finally caught up and he ran up and he just hugged me. And what he said was. He's been practicing hating me for all these years. But when I made that call, something in his voice, in my voice, sent all the hate away, right? And he allowed me an audience and I went in and I did my men's to my son, man. Um, that was November 2008. And we've been like this ever since. And that's the direct result of, of good sponsorship direction in a God who I don't really understand. Because if God was small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for me to trust. 
I don't understand why he do some of the things that he do sometimes. And it ain't for me to understand. You know, what's meant for me to know, I'll know. You know, but from that day to this one, me and my son had a great relationship. And he got a chance to see his nana. That's what he used to call my mom. He got a chance to see his nana again before she passed. You know what I mean? And, and I'm just going to keep coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous because you know what? Only a guy like that can just write a story like that, you know? And I was, you know, when I think about it, you know, my five years of sobriety, right? Um, <clears throat> in sobriety, I'm sober, right? I make a baby. However, I pretend he don't exist. And I lie to myself so well that he don't exist. Eight years after I made him, I'm laying in the bed. I can't sleep, right? You know what y'all guys taught me around here was the greatest pillow I can sleep on is a clear conscience. And my conscience wasn't clear. I hadn't seen him, hadn't heard from him, so he didn't exist. And I'm up at two o'clock in the morning. I don't even know if, if he does exist. I don't even know if he has a name. I don't know what his name is. And um, I say, guys, I need you to help me with this one. Okay, you got to be careful what you ask for around here. Because um, if he do exist, God, please show him to me. Well, a couple weeks later, I get a letter from California Child Support Services, right? Ooh, that did not go well. Obviously, one thing led to another. They claimed they served me. They ended up garnishing my wages. You know what I'm saying? And I guess they taking money. I might as well meet this kid. He was eight years old, right? And I can't tell you, once I put this on paper, Ralph will tell you, I think I wrote on this about four years straight. Because every time something happened, my paycheck got decremented. You know, that child support hit. You know, I, I mean, I got to the point where I wouldn't even answer a calls. And I love my workshop because when I shared it, right, people rush you after the meeting and they say, well, look, Jerry, put a picture of him on her name. So when she calls, you'll realize what you're supposed to be talking about. And that opened up the line of our communications. And it took me a while, man. It took me a lot of writing. It took me a long while to get to where I was at. Um, well, today, we just dropped him off at college about four months ago. He's at Luther College, right? Down in uh, Decorah, Iowa, right? This is going to blow you away. I got a beautiful young wife. And she wanted to have a baby, right? And I'm like, but baby, you know how old I am? You know what I mean? So last couple of years, we've been thinking about it. So we went IVF, right? Everything was going fine until about seven months. She got sick. She came out with preeclampsia and health syndrome. This was just in September, right? And we in the hospital, blood pressure 188 over 90, right? She was towed up. Standing there and I'm watching her. They finally found a vein to get some magnesium in her. And it's not looking good. But all of a sudden, the blood pressure started to come down. I'm like, yeah, thank you, God. But her blood work was coming back bad. Doctor said, we're going to take one more. And if the blood work not good, we're going to have to take this baby. And he came back, and that's exactly what he said. Two hours later, we need to prep you from surgery. And she grabbed my hand. And she squoze it real hard. And she looked at me. She said, baby, if you got to choose. She said, choose the baby. I'm like, my feet are trained. And what I said to her was, check this out. I got a guy big enough to bring both of y'all home. Now, I don't know if he would, but I know that he could. And that's my faith around here in this fellowship. You know, and they took her into surgery, y'all. And at 1130 that night, we named her after my mom. Her thing was born. Two pounds, 1.4 ounces. So it's big enough I can hold her in my hand. She had tubes and everything coming up out of it. But it wasn't over yet because mama was still under the night. Right? So I stood across this hall watching them work on her. 
one o'clock that morning. And then they wheeled her out. And God brought both of my ladies home. She'll be five months tomorrow. She weighs 13 pounds and she's running the whole house. What you see before you is mercy and grace. And I believe that's because of the process outlined in the big book, Arrows Anonymous. I didn't deserve this life or earn this thing that I have today. I don't. And my God is so big, I can even loan him out for a little while. So if your God ain't big enough to handle yours, you can borrow mine. Just make sure you give him back. And um, my life has changed. I got to start going back to the gym. The bones are starting to crack. I got the daddy arm. It's kind of a doodle thing. You know, I, I just, I can barely turn the doorknob with it. And, um, <clears throat> but here's the kicker. I'm talking to my baby and we're talking about godparents. That woman I had to write on for all them dang years, they are my baby godparents. I said, that's it, I'm done. I'm tapping out. I can't, I can't, God, I can't take no more of this. I, I just can't, man. What are you talking about? I don't even like them that much. But she seen the spirit in them, right? She seen the way they treated my son, Josh. And she said they would be great godparents. I said, okay. You know, if you be new, I like to welcome you to it. Fact-finding, fact-facing, discarded mission, uh, 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 a process that'll get you in touch with something a lot bigger than you that can solve all your problems. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I'll share this story real quick. So there was other amends that I needed to make. Because obviously my other children, they had living amends, right? So um, I'm talking to my son. And apparently him and his mom and her husband had lost their home. And they've been living in hotels for the last four months. <clears throat> so I says, wow, how come you ain't calling me, Jay? He said, ah, oh, Pop, I don't know. I said, well, why don't you come live with me until they can save some money and find, until they find a new place? That'll, you know, that'll help them out because you got your own room, right? He said, yeah. I'm living in Oxnard, California, right across the street from St. John's Medical Center, right? He said, okay, Pop, that's cool. I'm going to go, let me go tell Mom. Well, I get a call a couple hours later, right? And this is Mom. And she said, hey, Jerry, thanks for allowing us to come move in with you. I said, who is us? You know what I'm saying? Um, us? You know, it was just supposed to be Jerry, right? Little Jerry. But I couldn't say nothing, right? I'm like, oh, uh-oh. Ooh, it's not going to be good. You know what I mean? She said, well, this weekend work for you? I'm like, oh, okay. And um, I'm like, ah, shit, I got to call my sponsor. You know what I mean? I said, I don't want all them living with me. I'm living by myself, right? Freaking three floor, three bedroom townhouse by myself. And see, when I said the third step prayer, you know, the that house ain't even my house. My name's on it, but that's not my house. That's God's house, right? So anyway, they moved in that weekend. I'm biting my tongue. I mean, I was just like, could you please leave me a little room in the freezer for my stuff? Because I don't eat processed food. You know what I mean? I open the freezer, shit falling out. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, ain't nobody listening, you know? So a week after they get there, right? A week, just a week. She's sitting there talking to her husband. And he goes into a complete stroke. He can't respond. She dialed 911. Well, you know that hospital I was living across the street from? That's Southern California number one stroke center. And when they dialed 911, they didn't even send an ambulance. They wheeled some people across the street and they said 10 more minutes, that dude would have been a vegetable for the rest of his life. So listen. God wrote that story. You understand what I'm saying? I don't know how that message got twisted between my son and to his mother. You know what I mean? But what I learned in that moment is God can and would if he was sought, right? That this, my life is just to be lived forward. You know what I mean? And no matter how it comes, I got to trust God. This is the way it's supposed to be. 
You know, this is the way it's supposed to be. Why my salvage expert, who I call God, reached down in the muck and mire of life, pulled my tire behind, wretched behind up and dusted me off and stood me up so I can go tell somebody what he did. Because if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. I did not earn or deserve the life I'm living today, but I'm here to tell you that there's a problem in my life that says I do. And you're right. You're right, Holly. I could not get good enough for that other God I came in here with. I couldn't get good enough for him. I've been going to hell since I was 12. Because, you know, the pastor used to say, if you thought it, you did it. And them sisters used to wear them tight dresses back there. And I used to look at them and I was like, oh, God, oh, God, I'm going to hell. And I would hold my head down in the church like this. And my mama said, boy, stop sleeping in church. I said, mama, I ain't sleeping. I'm trying not to go to hell. You know what I mean? And, um, and she didn't understand what I was talking about. But God damn it, I've been falling short. I ain't worthy, but he still loves me. I'm not worthy, but he still loves me. So I can carry a message of hope to the hopeless. Because when I got here, nobody wanted to talk to me. Nobody didn't have nothing to say to me. Doors were being closed in my face. I was living in abandoned buildings. And I had burnt it all the way down to the ground. And you guys told me that that was the perfect condition to get in here with. You know what I'm saying? The worse off you are when you get here, the better my chances of staying. Now, your bottom won't have to look like your bottom. It really don't. All you have to do is be sick and tired of being sick and tired. And God met his rest right where he was at. You know, I read the story in um, <clears throat> Grapevine early, early on. It talks about this guy going through life, making all these bad decisions. He falls down in this really dark hole, right? But he can see life going by him. And that was me on Sundays. Because I would come up missing on payday, you know? I come up missing on payday. And I go back home Sunday just to look at them hungry kids, you know, that I promised last week is going to be different this week. You know what I mean? And I meant to keep my promise. I did. I really did. I didn't mean to treat my kids the way I did. I really did. But what I was suffering from didn't care nothing about my kids. I didn't have the ability to stop doing what I was doing. But anyway, I'm looking at life going by and I'm I'm hauling out for help and ain't nobody coming down there because it's dark. Who talked about the dark? Jimmy. It's dark. Ain't nobody coming down there. Preacher walks by, drops down the prayer on a piece of paper. Police said, I think you're in violation. I might get a ticket if I come back. You know what I mean? Good Samaritan said, I ain't strong enough. You know what I mean? And then somebody from AA came by and they jumped down that hole super fast. Dude said, what? Now we both down here. But the guy from AA said, yeah, I know. But I've been here before and I know the way out. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is to me. Each one, teach one. I can't get to where I'm going unless I'm pulling somebody up behind me. You know what I'm saying? And I'm grateful to be here. My name is Jerry Miller and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for allowing me to share, guys.